Are either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Yeah, well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry? You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Welcome in. A bit of a quiet week for blockbusters. We've got a little bit of old Hollywood, though. We do. To talk about this week. Quite welcome. a theme. Yeah, welcome. This is the Screening Room Podcast, and she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And we're from madwolf.com. That's M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F.com. Check it out for all your movie fun. And this week, we start off with a mysterious past of a fishing boat captain coming back to haunt him when his ex-wife tracks him down with a desperate plea for help ensnaring his life in a new reality that may not be all that it seems. It's called Serenity. Good to see you, John. It took so long to find you. Why would you want to find me? My husband has never seen your face. You were right about him. He's violent with you. What's this? Just a little scratch. A little scratch, huh? I want you to take him out on your boat and drop him in the ocean for the sharks. WTF! Yeah, uh, I think the harshness of the reviews for this movie is spreading quite quickly. People people relish sometimes in the bad reviews. We've noticed on our reviews, a lot of them get more traction when they're really bad. Which, people and, just are fascinated by the train wrecks, and this is one. Yeah. You know, and it was a, it's a little bit of a surprise. First of all, the two leads, Oscar winners both. Yeah. Um, but they've both been in bad movies before. Certainly. And that, but, you know, uh, Steve Knight wrote and directed it, and he's he's a great writer. He wrote Eastern Promises. I mean, he, he uh, Dirty Pretty Things, lots of things. He he doesn't have he done wrote, it. He wrote and directed Locke. Locke, Remember which that? we loved. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, it, and it, like this movie, different chances, but that movie took chances. It did. Agreed. So does this one, which we'll get to in a minute. So there is talent involved. It's certainly, you know, you've got good-looking talent. Mm-hmm. And the scenery, that's the best thing about this movie. Let's <laughs> let's just get the good stuff out of the way right now. It looks fantastic. There's some great island scenery. Mm, I thought you were just talking about McConaughey. but <laughs> Well, he does, you know, ladies and, and, and dudes, if you're into that. it's uh, He shows a lot of flesh, a lot of beefcake. And when he doesn't, his shirt is so clingy and wet. It's wet all the time. <laughs> and it seems to get more wet when he's inside somehow. <laughs> One of the mysteries of this movie, it's interesting because right from the beginning, it's so noir, you know, drinking and the downing a shot and then, oh, big, heavy, dramatic size. And it's so over the top noir as you get to the the plot, the fact that, yeah, Anne Hathaway is the ex-wife. She tracks him down. He's a grizzled fishing boat captain in this small fishing community where everybody knows everybody's business. And she tracks him down. She's now married to this rich guy, this rich kingpin played by Jason Clark, who's, who's also, also also very good. Always good. But she tells him that he was right about this guy back in the day when she was leaving him for Jason Clark, leaving uh, McConaughey for Jason Clark. He's now abusive, and he's also abusive to their child that is living with the couple. So the offer is $10 million to take the husband out on... Uh, McConaughey's fishing boat, feed him to the sharks, and $10 million. So, you know, the body heat vibe is all over the place. And it's so thick with this that you're just thinking, what's up? What's what's up with this? This is so deliberate. And then, much like, if you remember in Gone Girl, the setup of that, you're going, 
wait, these characters don't seem like real people. What, what, what's, what's up with that? And then it makes that pivot. Yeah. But in that movie, that pivot worked because yeah. it went somewhere. Where this goes, borderline nonsensical. And I think, you know, they were trying something. They were taking some risks. But I think there were, it was like two, right, that I think people aren't going to maybe get behind. The first of it, you know, you're so, if you're not like you going, okay, this is intentional. Why are they doing it? You're just instead going, why are they so over the top? This is ridiculous. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That, that if you're not already sort of thinking ahead, okay, why? I bet this is going to happen. That by the time the pivot happens, they, they've already lost. The movie is already ludicrous to them. So then... The leap of logic that he's like, nope, yeah, done. Yeah, I, I give you that. He does, and by he I mean Stephen Knight, the writer-director, takes quite an audacious chance. He does. He really does. So I give him credit for that mm-hmm. because you take that chance. It just, by the time it gets there, it seems so misguided. And and trust us, we can't even hint at what no. it is because I don't want to spoil anything for anybody that nope. might want to go. Yeah. You, we can't even go down that, that road of where it might be. But trust me. It's one of those that not only is it head-scratching, but it's so spoon-fed to you at the end. It's just regurgitated in almost a, a narrated form about exactly what's happening, you know? And it just I, doesn't trust that you could follow what they were saying, what they were doing, what I the pivot suppose. was. And it's, it's got its, its heart in the right—I mean, it, I think it's, it was well-intentioned as, as to where it was going— Again, I wish I could say more, but I really can't. You know, it's. It, I think it was well intentioned, but boy, it just seems like an an audacious type of risk that, while while uh, we just mentioned Locke, a risk that worked. Yeah, this was one that you know what, buddy, good try, but no, this no. was just way off the mark. Yeah. And I think it's one that uh, people are going to forget. I mean, it's a January release, so a lot of times we talk about January releases. They're put there for a reason. Yep. It probably got a big screen weekend because its big stars are involved. And because there's nothing else that comes out this yeah. weekend or next. I yeah. mean, it's, it's very it, slow. It really seems like a this should have gone straight to DVD yeah. type of thing. So yeah. a, a real head-scratcher and not a good one at all for Serenity. You know, the reason that there is so f- little of, of new, big, fresh movies out this weekend. It, it's because the Oscar nominations just came out, and so they're rolling those back out yeah. and assuming that people are going to go see those films instead. Yeah, and that's interesting because Serenity, as bad as it is, has a lot of Oscar, not only Oscar winners, but Oscar nominees yeah, all, all over, over that film. So so what do we think, bottom line, about the Oscar nominations? There's always going to be gripes, and we certainly have some mm-hmm. uh, this year. One thing for me, though, in a, in a lot of the categories where I think of people like, say, Ben Foster, yeah. okay, we would love to see Ben Foster nominated yes. for Leave No Trace. I'm just using him as an example. Then we st- start to say, okay, if we're going to put him in, who are we taking out? And some of these, that's hard to do, well, especially with the women. Oh, yeah. I have never seen a stronger uh, year for... Oscar contention for lead and supporting actress. It's great. Ever. It is great. It's, it's, it, it's, and half of them are in the favorite. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's true. Uh, it They're is. hogging it's, them all. You know, but right from the beginning, when I saw the movie Hereditary, I was like, man, I hope they remember Tony Collette at yep. the end of the year. And yep. then the end of the year came, and I thought, I don't know where I would put Tony Collette. Well, Same with Elsie Fisher exactly, from 8th grade. Exactly. You know, where, who would you take out? Right. And you're like, I, I don't know. No, not from Best Actress. I mean, that is, exactly. that is a killer category. Um, best Supporting Actress is a killer yes, category this year. I, I'm, I'm with you all the way. Now, as far as the best films go, there were only eight. Mm-hmm. And I know they can have, with this new rule that they enacted a few years ago, you can have up to ten. 
So we could, on our own, <laughs> if it was us, just throw two movies in there and still get ten. But I think the two that stand out for me, and probably you, because we've talked about this quite often, that don't belong in there are Bohemian Rhapsody Number and, one. and Green Book. And um, it's, which is weird to say, because that's the front runner. Green is, Book is the likeliest film to win, but yes. it doesn't deserve to be nominated. I don't, uh, I don't uh, think so either. Bohemian Rhapsody has no business being in there. It doesn't. Uh, aside from the... Live Aid scene, which is phenomenal. And a great performance. And a great performance as a movie, especially a musical biopic, no. No. It just really doesn't. I know I mean, it's, it's extremely popular. Yeah. But it's, it's enjoyable. A lot of movies were enjoyable. Yeah. That doesn't mean that they deserve to be nominated for the best film made in an entire year because yeah. it's not one of the eight best films made this year. Yeah, we were. although we were very glad to see Black Panther yeah. and Black Klansman. And Roma. And Roma. I mean, there were, yeah. and The Favorite. Some, yeah, there are yeah. some great movies in that list definitely right now. Are. But we would, we would definitely add in Best Picture we would have added a talk about nobody saw a movie you were never really here oh yes uh, and Joaquin Phoenix that's that's a guy the, the year that he had this year and all the different movies he was in and but all no one saw any of them and he just got no and no. that's probably why yeah, he got no, no, any of them. no recognition and we believe me we perfectly understand how this works just because you're good doesn't mean you're gonna get nominated no. we know there's money Behind these campaigns, right. a small movie like Eighth Grade right. probably had no money to mount a campaign. But and that- I really, I really thought that if it didn't get a picture nomination and if it didn't get Best Actress, which I, I understood that it probably would not, yeah. I expected to see it in screenplay. Bo Burnham, yeah, I really did. Yeah, it's it's just so magical yeah. the that film and I, I was really sorry that it got nothing at all. And another big surprise because he was nominated all over the place and the film was in other um, categories, I was a bit surprised that Bradley Cooper didn't get a directing nod. Right, and what was surprising, although I'm not going to complain, the, the, the director who made Cold War, mm-hmm. which we will talk about next week on the show, got a Best Director yeah. nomination. So that's two foreign films in Best Director. That's right. Which is rare. It is. Because it the is other very, one, Alfonso yes. Cuaron, yeah. Much, much deserved for Roma. So well, and he of course, probably, and he's already won, and he, yeah. you know, but he won for an English language mm-hmm. film. So it's exciting to see him nominated and, for uh, a Spanish language. And film. of course, they're both fantastic oh movies. Oh my God, yes! But I was a bit surprised that Bradley Cooper, uh, because of all the other uh, nominations for *A Star Is Born*, didn't, right. didn't get in there. So anyway, we've got our full rumination on the Oscars <laughs> this year on our website. You can find it in our outtakes section at MadWolf.com. So let's move back to this week. We talked about old Hollywood as a theme this week. Well, how about Laurel and Hardy, the world's most famous comedy duo, attempting to reignite their film careers as they embark on what becomes their swan song, a grueling theater tour of post-war Britain. It's Stan and Ollie. How do you feel about the size of the audiences? I've been a little disappointed. And they said, could you persuade Stan and Ollie to do some publicity in order to turn the tour around? Would there be any more money? They said no. Well, who is they? People worst kind. How's your knee? It hurts. Has he been pushing you a little too hard, mate? No. You could have long time ago said goodbye, Oliver. That's all in the past. You betrayed me. Betrayed our friendship. I loved us. You loved Laurel and Hardy. But you never loved me. You're not leaving, are you, Stan? The show must go on. We like to finish now with a little dance. You sure? I can do it. I'll miss us when we're gone. This is a, a very quiet, unassuming film. It is. That succeeds in a quiet, unassuming way. And it's led by the two lead performances. John C. Riley got nominated for a Golden Globe for his performance. And so, and 
And I'm always expecting great things from John C. Riley. I really am. But and he's great in this. Yes. And and it's it's he's hardy. He's he's in a very great fat suit. Yeah. Um, especially in the face area, the way they make his cheeks and his jowls, it's it's great. Darkest hour levels of great <laughs> fat suit, and he's wonderful. It's Steve Coogan though playing Stan Laurel. Mm-hmm. That's the one that really surprised me. Not that I think he's I think he's very talented. I have seen him be very talented in many things, but he really leads this film, and not only is it eerie how much he looks like Laurel. It's a it's a very nuanced and internal and just really strong performance. It really is. And it's so it was it was written by uh, Steve Coogan's writer for Philomena. Right. Uh, so they co wrote Philomena, Coogan yes, and and, yes. and 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 so uh, he takes this, his name's Jeff Pope, and uh, he takes full credit for the screenplay of this. And yeah, it's so quiet. It focuses on their their friendship and how most of this movie takes place toward the toward the end of their career, yeah. and as as we said in the uh, synopsis, there the their last big tour of post war Britain, where they kind of get a a final ride to the sunset, where they they are mm-hmm. able to get some big audiences yeah. again through a lot of uh, interesting uh, promotional type of activities led by this smarmy manager who's great. He's great. <laughs> he is great. And how he tries to just take credit for things but take blame for nothing, uh, which I love. But um, yeah, it, it focuses on their their friendship, their squabbles. They had some some bit of uh, grudges held against each other for years. Now they try to deal with that, and it's it's gentle in the way that it shows this old Hollywood and how they had to do it back then and pretty much be on twenty four seven because you see a lot of these Laurel and Hardy type gags work their way into their real life. Yeah, I think there are two things that really set this film apart. One is that since it is a behind-the-scenes, kind of of the beginning of the end for a very famous... You expect a lot more drama. You expect some teeth. Mm-hmm. Boy, you're not going to get it here. It is a very tender, very sweet film. It is. And then the other thing that makes it particularly charming is the way that, yeah, they. it's like life imitates art, imitates life. Yeah. You know, Laurel and Hardy are Laurel and Hardy. So whether they're dragging a trunk up the steps in a movie <laughs> just to let go and have to go back down, right. or they're doing it at the at the train station in real life. Exactly. And it's so sweet and enjoyable and fun. And when you layer in these really, really good performances, it's a surprise how the film, it doesn't exactly pack a wallop. Right, it's it not, doesn't, no. It's no. hardly a roller coaster, Yeah, and it's, but it's really enjoyable. And it's interesting when they do something like like pull up to a hotel with their wives and just figure that, okay, should we do that bit in right. front of all these people about the opening the car door? And so they do it. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It doesn't pack a wallop. It doesn't pack all the, uh, like a tell-all type of no. you know, scandal sheet. It's, it's, it's quiet, it's respectful, and it's very, yeah, it's very enjoyable. It is. It really yeah. is. And a great family movie opening this week. A band of kids embarking on an epic quest to thwart a medieval menace. Writer-director Joe Cornish is finally back with The Kid Who Would Be King. You're a king, Alexander. The sword chose you. Why would we help you? Because you're the strongest people I know. You're my knights. And this is the round table. Quick, Bettis, lift up the flaps. Oh my god, you're such a nerd. This is destiny. And we say Joe Cornish is finally back because his last movie 
was one that we love from 2011 called Attack the Block. Oh, and that it has, is a while, isn't it, it? Yes. Can you believe that? It started a very young John Boyega. He was. He owned it. He owned it. But he, yeah, he was own, a revelation. And not anything like he is in, in more recent. He not was at all. a badass. But he it was, was great. It was similar to this movie because it was very kid-based. It was a group. Yeah. That movie was a group of kids. Teenagers. Teenagers dealing with an alien invasion. Yep. And even though their Cockney accents were so thick, <laughs> you needed some... Sometimes. Uh, <laughs> Subtitles sometimes. <laughs> it was very enjoyable. Now oh, this one, so good. This one has more of a Goonies type vibe because it's a group of kids. They're younger kids in a retelling, a modern retelling of the Sword and the Stone, and it it's so fun and so fresh and 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 so heartwarming for the family. Plus. It's got a, a real find here because everybody knows, probably knows Andy Circus. Yeah, by he's now. so good. He does all the. You might the, not know him by face, right? but <laughs> you does, know his work. He does all that motion capture stuff. He was Caesar in Planet of the Apes. He was Gollum. He was. In he Lord was of King the Rings. Kong. So he was, he's, yeah. He's a guy who, if there's ever been anybody that deserved an Oscar nomination for that motion capture, oh, he's yeah. the guy. Yeah. Anyway, now his son is in the movies, Louis Ashbourne Circus. He's the star as Alex, and he is a find. Yeah. I, I expect to see much more of him. And he leads the, the ragtag group of kids here that just, you know the story of, yeah. of the sword and the stone, and you so you know where it's going, but it's done in a fresh, it's not trying to be anything that it's not, and it embraces everything that it is. And much like um, we've been singing the praises for weeks now of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, yeah. it's a family film that the kids will love and the parents will go, boy, that's just a breath of fresh air. Right. That I, you're into it, too. And you're into the entire adventure, and I think they've got a, a a new star in this young circus. And Joe Cornish, I hope that he gets a little more proactive with with films <laughs> that's right. because yeah uh, he must like the uh, the group kids coming together for adventures and this is kind of stuff that he's going to keep putting out well bring it on that's so right definitely recommend the kid who would be king Next, we'll take a look at a new documentary on a remote new Siberian island in the Arctic Ocean. Hunters are searching for the tusks of extinct mammoths. And on the other side of the world, scientists are trying to bring the mammoth back. What? It's called Genesis 2.0. For the Industrial Revolution with energy, it was the machine. For us, it's the cell. It's going to change everything. The hunters search for tusks, each one of them desperately hopes to find the white gold. World-famous molecular engineer and geneticist George Church. He wants to bring a woolly mammoth back to life. Out of a petri dish. Hopefully, mammoth. <laughs> Here's my question. Have those scientists seen Jurassic Park? Because you know what? <laughs> you know. Movies tell me that this never ends well. Yeah, uh, watching this, I almost expected halfway through just Jeff Goldblum to pop in and say, uh, you know, just because you can do this, <laughs> maybe you, mean should. you should. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, we were talking, first of all, this is a, fa a fascinating documentary. And we were talking earlier about, I remember back the very first time that I, even before I saw Jurassic Park, because I didn't read the book, but when I realized what the plot was, I thought to myself, and I'm no scientist, what? but I, I thought to myself, well, that, that sounds plausible. <laughs> and you know what? They're working on it. And it's really, it's a tale of two documentaries. It's got two different directors because they film on the other side of the world. One of the directors was embedded with these Siberian hunters for an entire hunting season, which looks grueling in every sense of the word. My Lord, these guys. And they're hunting for tusks, mammoth tusks that can so, be very valuable. But that doesn't valuable. mean they're... 
there are no living mammoths. Like, uh, the the word hunter throws me. It seems like they're out there with bows and arrows trying to take down the <laughs> mammoth. No, they're searching. They're searchers. They call themselves they hunters, so I'm going to call them hunters, all right? During this exhibi- exhibition, for the first time in, in human history, they find a pretty much intact carcass crazy. of a mammoth. And I'm telling you right now, one guy tastes it. You know... He says his people love raw meat, and he actually tastes That's it there insane. on camera. I'm like, what? And it tastes like chicken. But, <laughs> but here's the thing. No, it really, I'm making light of it, but it really it is fascinating because while they're doing that, then you've got these scientists on the other side of the world, mainly in China, trying to, two different teams, trying to bring back the woolly mammoth. One, led by an American uh, geneticist, it wants to do it by hybrid. You know, like how you cross breeds, like the Zorse, they keep talking about a zebra and a horse, and they show one. Crazy. And then another one who's actually, coincidentally enough, one of the brothers of one of the hunters. He's a scientist, and he wants to bring one back strictly by cloning. Mm -hmm. And so when they get this mammoth, then the idea is, all right, all we got to do is find one living cell, and this this Chinese uh, genome engineering firm can clone a freaking mammoth, as they've done to thousands of dogs. And they show you all these cloning dogs they've done. So... Yeah, it's very, it's it's scary, and they do talk about the morals and the ethics involved and, you know, how the Siberian people who hunt these these tusks, they're very aware, their village, their tribal elders, their people have very big superstitions about messing with these dead mammoths, and uh, the tusks is one thing, you know, bringing one back, that's whole other juju. Uh, so they do touch on these things, and it is a bit of a slog. It's it's almost two hours, and they do spend a lot of time with these hunters, which is fascinating, but does tend to drag a little bit. But but overall, if this is the type of thing you're interested in, I, I would very much recommend it. It's it's very fascinating, and at times scary, and not only Jeff Goldblum, but you can just hear Samuel L. Jackson in the background going, hang on to your butts. <laughs> and the other guy, Newman, going, uh-uh-uh, uh-uh-uh. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> Newman. <laughs> I know Wayne Knight's his name, but he's he's Newman. But, uh, yeah, fascinating documentary, Genesis 2.0. We'll go back to old Hollywood next for another documentary on the life and works of comic genius Buster Keaton, directed by Peter Bogdanovich. It's called The Great Buster. Buster Keaton is uh, the essence of movies. A lot of my daring came from Keaton. It's amazing how timeless he is and how that type of physical comedy will never be unfunny. How many filmmakers can you say that about? It's funny, Bogdanovich has had a hand in really you know, bringing people's attention back to some of his heroes recently because he had a hand in not only the documentary but also the film, the... the Other Side of the Wind. It was the last Orson Welles movie that, that took fin- 40 years finally to see the got light finished of day that he stars in. Right. And then he was behind the documentary on the making of that movie. Exactly. So, yeah, he's, he's been doing that lately, and he does it here because he is just one of the many people featured in this documentary that really giving a big tip of the cap for, to, for inspiration to Buster Keaton. Yeah, there are so many people in here. Mel Brooks and Richard Carl Reiner, Lewis, Richard Lewis, and, yeah. And people like, uh, obviously, because Buster Keaton was such a physical comedian, Johnny Knoxville oh, and yeah, all the yeah, jackass yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and it is a, a fascinating and fun way to remember who a lot of us don't know anything about. Like many of I've never seen a Buster Keaton film, which obviously I need to remedy that. But uh, it's, it's nice 
the way that they pay such respect to what is really the the basis for much of what they do for a living. Yeah, very much so. And it's it's done well because obviously Peter Bogdanovich is a uh, well-versed and well-accomplished director, and uh, he narrates it as well and gets a lot of his friends and colleagues and people that were influenced by Buster Keaton to get on camera. And they show a lot of clips, as you might guess. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, much in the vein of, in, in a different way, you know, the uh, Stan and Ollie sure. gave such a respectful, nuanced, gentle salute to uh, Stan and Ollie. Uh, this one does it to Buster Keaton. And actually, it was written, the review was written by one of our other writers at MadWolf.com, uh, Brandon Thomas. Mm-hmm. And he liked it very much. He did. Gave it four stars. You can check that, uh, you can check that review out if you'd like, MadWolf.com. And we'll close out with one more documentary in limited release this week that features strangers reading 40-year-old letters that were written to the editors of Ms. Magazine. It's called Yours in Sisterhood. Dear Ms., I work part-time at a gas station in Oakland. I pump gas, wash windows, put air in tires. I am 26, divorced, and have one child, age four. I felt useless, washed out, and wasted. Wow, I'm really moved. And, you know, this lady, whoever took the time to write, I'm honored to transport or give life to her words. This is a really unique, visionary kind of a film made by... Just reading the premise is, oh, that's unique. Irene Lustig is the name of the director, and, you know, she found... She went through archives. She found some fascinating letters written to the editors of Ms. Magazine, which was the first feminist magazine, national magazine. And what she did was just have basically today's women, usually in very similar circumstances, mm-hmm. in the same town, from the same socioeconomic background, from the same uh, uh, racial makeup, read the letters aloud into the camera, and then they just pause. And, and it gives you a, sec- a second to think how much has or has not changed in terms of feminism in the last 40 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, It looks great the way that she has these things set up, you know, in these small towns and these lovely front yards and things across the country. Sometimes the uh, readers really disagree, have a very different perspective than the writer, and other times it's very tender in the way that that these readers feel honored to get the opportunity to to bring this person's voice back after all of these years. So it is a fascinating and very unusual look at feminism across the decades. Again, very limited release, but if you can find it, well worth the effort. All right, let's see what's new on video. Let's go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. A couple of good ones coming out for home video this week. Uh, You've got First Man, which is a movie that, boy, I don't think found an audience that it deserved. It's Mm -mm. the story of Neil Armstrong uh, with a great lead performance by Ryan Gosling. Directed by Damien Chazelle. Mm -hmm. And I expected to get at least some technical nominations. I thought it might get for cinematography. I thought the score as well. I enjoyed the score. Yeah, it got one nomination, maybe for maybe for sound editing or for something like that. Yeah, it got yeah. one, but total of yeah. one nomination. And it just did not. We, I think we both thought it was a solid, solid movie. Yeah, uh, it was very good. Uh, it had some. It was very understated. It is, and very. in a lot of ways, because sort of the moon landings and you know all of that, it can be so hyperbolic. To, the way that they that they really rein the emotion in makes certain parts of it resonate more for me. Well, that's, I think, because the there's been a few movies lately about the space program, and, and 
well-deserved. This one, I think, really tried to get inside the psyche and what, especially of Neil Armstrong, uh, and I think it fit his reserved nature, the movie did, and also that tried to show the, the, the physical and mental toll yeah. that it took on these these astronauts and their families. And, and I think it did that. Honestly, I think one of the reasons that they, maybe it didn't hit was because it is so deeply from the perspective of Neil Armstrong, and he is such and internal yes. that it's very hard to feel connected with him, which makes it hard to remain connected with the film. Yes, but I tell you, when they get to that landing on the moon, uh-huh. it's pretty awe-inspiring. Mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. is. That's why I thought it might have grabbed a cinematography, yeah. but but it didn't. But we recommend First Man. Also recommend The Hate You Give, which is out this week. This one surprised me because most of the time, and I try to water these expectations down when I'm going into a YA movie, mm-hmm. but... You know, seeing so many of them be a certain way has led me to yeah, where the, expect the young certain, girl yeah. is she doesn't realize how special she is, right. and you know, it's a formula. You know, yeah. But this one does a great job of rising above yep. that, and uh, it's a it's a uh, very good performance, lead performance by Amanda Stenberg, who's been in a lot of these movies. Yes, and the the entire ensemble cast is good. Tells the story of. Her basically living in two different worlds. She lives in her hood, but at the same time, she's she goes to a private school that her friends call the white kids school, you know, across town. And then she's involved in witnessing a police shooting and very, very in the headlines type of stuff. And I thought it was very well handled. It leads to a finale that for me was a little bit, you know, a little too much, mm-hmm. a little pressed, a little bit too much. But boy, up up until then, and and even with that, it's still very much worth seeing. And one especially of the, for the audience who it's intended for. Oh yeah, very well. So very good conversation starters, especially if you're seeing it with your kids. Uh, so recommend the hate you give. Next week, you already mentioned one of them. We're going to talk about Cold, Cold War. War. Very excited about that one. Lots of Oscar nominations for that one. An acceptable loss, a new one from Jamie Lee Curtis, and she's got she's having a banner uh, third act, isn't yes, she? Yes, yes. And then the, I think this is the one where the, we're the most excited to see. We get to see it on Monday. Is they shall not grow old. Yeah, I just saw the full theatrical trailer for this on the big screen uh, before Serenity, actually. So hey, I got something out of it, uh, <laughs> and it just hooked me in from the trailer. It's Peter Jackson. Apparently, it's World War One footage, uh, like darn near a hundred years old, yeah. and colorized and restored. It, it, it just it hooked me from the trailer, yeah. so I, I can't wait for this, so yeah. we'll see. So until then, uh, let us know what you thought about any of these movies or the Oscar nominations. What would you think? What got snubbed? You can always find us on Twitter. That's the easiest way. We're at Mad Wolf, M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. And as we said, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram. It's Mad Wolf Columbus, and the main website is madwolf.com, where you can find our other podcast strictly about horror movies called Fright Club, and this week we're kind of mixing in the horror and the Oscars. That's right. Every year, right after the Oscar nominations come out, we do one called Skeletons in the Closet, where we revisit the terrible old horror movies that Oscar nominees started when they were young. Here's a hint. Frogs. (laughs) Oh my god, I love this one so much. Trust me, almost any successful actor or actress has a bad horror movie in their past. Sometimes they have many. And they are a lot of fun. We'll be checking that out on the Fright Club podcast. So many ways to get in touch. We hope you will. Until next week, the Screening Room Podcast is a presentation of the Columbus Radio Group. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap.